The time is now. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, Volume 1, Episode 23. Well, we are getting to the end of the year, the end of 2017. And, you know, other than the end of the year kinds of clean-up things that you have to do at work or in your own personal lives, most people think that the end of the year will be quiet. Most people think that uh, December tends to be a quiet month, no real news-making or any kind of earth-shattering events. You just do your clean-up and go quietly into the holidays and the new year and rejuvenate a little bit until the start uh, of a new year. Not with the NLRB and not this end of year. It's sort of like you are the head of HR and you're leaving at the end of December. You're leaving the company at the end of the month and right before you leave, just a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks right before you leave, you fire up your office computer and you start typing up all kinds of stuff to your employees at the company. Something like, hey folks, oh, by the way, there will be no more vacation days starting uh, right now be a little jarring right on your way out a little eventful for the end of the year holiday time well isn't that sort of what we just seen the last few weeks with chairman Philip Miscamara at the NLRB who we know is leaving at the end of his term this month in December um, but on his way out he has really been in the news heading up a few very noteworthy decisions uh, that the NLRB uh, has just issued um, it's really been a stunning end of the year for those people who thought it wasn't going to be a very newsworthy last month of 2017. But so now we have our special guest now segment of the podcast, and I turn this to Barry Kearney. Barry recently joined my firm, Cozen O'Connor, coming right from the NLRB itself, where he was the Associate General Counsel of the Board. His career with the NLRB actually has spanned 46 years, during which he helped decide some of the board's most difficult and important decision. So who better to help walk you through the NLRB's last few weeks than Barry Kearney? Barry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So uh, tell us a little bit about your prior role at the NLRB and what your thoughts are on your overall experience there. Well, I was with the agency uh, 46 years, my entire uh, legal career. Um, I held a number of positions in the field as a, as an attorney trying cases and investigating ULPs. I was a supervisor, came to Washington in management positions over the, over the field and went into advice uh, as a deputy. And for the last 22 years before I joined Cozen, was the associate general counsel, the uh, the head of advice, and for me personally, it was uh, it was just a fantastic career experience. I had 
an opportunity at a, at a very early time in my legal career to um, uh, try unfair labor practice um, uh, cases. I think I had my first case assigned to me um, three months after joining the uh, joining the agency and there's a great bunch of people who are committed to the uh, role of the agency and um, and so uh, it's just a great place to work and I would recommend it to anybody it's much different coming into a private practice uh, away from the government well it's it's uh, it's different and it's the uh, and, and and it's the same the law is the law is the law the way they um, uh, way things happen, the way they do things is a little bit uh, uh, different, uh, but uh, it, it, it's the same. What you're doing is dealing with people trying to uh, solve problems, and um, that, that's that's the way I think the, the law is to be uh, used for. Well, and I want to talk to you uh, for a minute about the current makeup of the board. Um, people have seen and read certainly a lot about the changes that are coming. People um, here, no matter if you're on the employer side, the employee side, uh, you hear that we've got obviously the Republican administration and there are changes on the board. The general counsel, the former general counsel um, left. We have a new general counsel. What can you tell us about the current makeup of the board um, and you know how that really determines what policies are going to be advanced and, and how things are going to proceed for the next few years sure at 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 present there are four members of the board uh, last Friday there were five uh, so um, before I ex- talk about that let me tell you who the what the current board is made up of and um, what's the likelihood that there'll be a fifth member there are there are two uh, the, of the four members there are two Republicans and two uh, Democrats. The chairman, uh, Phil Muscamara's uh, term, he was the chairman, ended on 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 Saturday. And we'll be talking about a number of yeah. the, the decisions that issued. He left, then, with a, he left with a bang. We'll get into that in a few minutes. But, uh, <laughs> but anyhow, the, uh, uh, the Democratic members are Mark Pierce. Uh, he's he's uh, on his uh, second term. He's um, was a for, was formerly the chairman. Uh, he's he was a union lawyer from. Um, uh, Buffalo, New York. Um, Lauren McFern is on her first term uh, before she joined the board. She was senior labor counsel to uh, uh, Senator Harkin. Um, Mill- uh, Bill Emanuel is on his uh, first term. He was uh, just recently, uh, uh, the last couple of months, uh, confirmed and, uh, by the Senate. He's a longtime management labor lawyer, Little Medicine in uh, in uh, Los Angeles and has a wealth of experience in uh, the administration of the uh, National Labor Relations Act. Um, Marvin Kaplan, he was previously um, the other Republican. He was previously counsel to the Republican sides in the House, and before he joined the board, he was a uh, uh, chief counsel to one of the um, uh, OSHA commissioners. Um, uh, and um, there's one vacant position. Um, and um, the person that is um, uh, expected to get the appointment, although it has not been confirmed by the president, is an individual by the name of John Ring. He's a management side lawyer with uh, uh, Morgan Lewis, and uh, uh, the uh, so it would, would appear, at least if what you read in the clip sheets, that he's uh, the, the front. Um, uh, runner and um, once the new person is appointed, the um, president will 
uh, obviously have to name a new chairman. Uh, it would seem it would be either John Ring or, um, or, or Bill Emanuel. How long should it take uh, for the process to get that uh, fifth seat filled? Well, I, that, that's, a, that's a very good question, and it's all to the vagaries. First of all, the, the vetting process that's going on with, uh, with the White House before the president um, uh, announces an intention to uh, nominate, and then there's the nomination, and then there's the um, uh, hearing before the Senate uh, committee, and uh, they get voted out, and then they have to come to the floor, and and um, the, the Senate is busy doing a whole lot of other things. And so uh, I, would, I would suspect we're, we're, we're probably talking a couple of months away. Okay. Um, and so even though, as I said, our, our listeners certainly uh, have heard and read a lot about the board, uh, particularly in recent months and years, I think a lot of folks out there still also don't know exactly how the board works. Um, can you give us a, a little bit of a sense of what the process is for the board to get to the point where they're making a decision either through some case or a policy pronouncement or guidance that will impact employers yeah, sure, and and it's it's interesting because the National Labor Relations Board is unique, uh, and I underscore that word unique, being like the only one of the administrative agencies whose general counsel um, has uh, independent authority. You look at any other uh, administrative agency, just take the EEOC, for example, their general counsel reports to the board, and uh, litigation and, and, and areas of litigation uh, are designed come from the the board, uh, uh, the, from the uh, commission of the um, National Labor Relations Board is independent of the general counsel, or rather said, the general counsel is independent of the board and has independent prosecutorial authority, and I should say, uh, Supreme Court has said unreviewable. Uh, prosecutorial uh, authority, but he wears two hats. He or she wears two hats. Um, one is the one is the prosecutor. The other is as the board's lawyer. Because when the board goes into court to enforce their uh, 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 opinions or defend their opinions in the courts of appeals, uh, the appellate division, which is supervised by the um, uh, general counsel, defends the board's decision. Um, uh, in 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 court. So in that respect, he's the board's um, uh, 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 lawyer. Uh, the general counsel um, also um, supervises the uh, field operations, um, um, and so uh, uh, the board's processes are not self-initiating as other regulatory agencies uh, might be. Like the EEOC, it's different like in that the, regard. In that regard. A charge has to be filed. Someone has to walk in the door and, and, and sign uh, a charge. That charge, unfair labor practice charge, is investigated. And if, if a complaint issues, um, then there's a trial before an administrative law judge. And that usually takes place in the field uh, office. Um, the uh, it's a trial in all respects. The rules of evidence are adhered to, and um, a transcript is made. At the end of the trial, briefs are filed. Uh, the ALJ issues a decision, and either party can appeal that decision to the board in Washington. And uh, the board then would uh, 
issue a decision. Now, the board's decisions are not self-enforcing. And so if the board finds a violation and the respondent refuses to comply, then that's when the board's appellate lawyers supervised by the general counsel go in and um, uh, uh, try to get the board order enforced. If the board decides to dismiss the complaint, the uh, union or the the party that did not uh, prevail can go into court, as standing to go into court, to try to get the board's decision reversed. And in that respect, the appellate division, again supervised by the general counsel, defends the board order in the courts um, uh, of appeals. So uh, basically, to, to how to look like, uh, what kind of model is it? It's more like a, 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 a model that you would have in either the federal or state level where you have a, prosecut a prosecutorial function and you have an adjudicative function, both separate. And so in the most recent years, you had Dick Griffin, uh, who was the general counsel um, at the board. Um, when you were there, uh, what was your role and how did the, the general counsel for the board um, you know, decide what kind of uh, policies or what kind of initiatives uh, the board would pursue uh, w w would the GC come and ask, you know, have a sit down and uh, ask the other lawyers, ask for your advice when it came to certain kinds of policy decisions or initiatives? Take us a little bit in the in behind the scenes there as to how <coughs> those kinds of things came about and who was generally involved with that. Okay, when when a when a general counsel uh, first uh, uh, comes in, there's there's certainly a, a a learning curve as to how the agency works and uh, just exactly what uh, what the role is and uh, I would say from my experience the uh, general counsel's staff is a very professional one rises to the occasion every time and very quickly tells the general counsel what's on what's on his plate what kind of decisions he needs to make what kind of um, uh, he needs to make now what kind of decisions he meets needs to make later uh, what are the issues coming down uh, the road there's discussions about what his priorities are what kind of cases he's interested in what his uh, initiatives uh, uh, might be and the result of that uh, discussion uh, uh, is, uh, is a document gets produced which euphemistically is called the mandatory submission list and uh, the mandatory submission is to the division of advice, where the general counsel talks about what he is, his uh, uh, priorities are, what kind of cases he's interested in, and he, he wants those kinds of cases uh, coming into the uh, the division of advice, uh, plus standard cases, well, cases of high visibility. Uh, case that's always been on that mandatory submission list that cross um, uh, regional uh, office uh, lines that needs to coordination and um, and once that uh, issue once that uh, document issues he's telling the uh, the labor bar both union and management just exactly the direction his term is going to be going in 
So let's talk about that for a moment. And obviously, um, Dick Griffin left the board, um, and we've got uh, Peter Robb sworn in as the NLRB's new general counsel. And it seems like the entire legal community was a bit blown away uh, by Mr. Robb's memo that he just issued, which uh, is giving, as you said, uh, his insight uh, into the board's new direction. Um, do you agree that his memo was particularly stunning in any regard? And, and um, either way, what do you think employers should actually take away from the memo he just issued? Well, I think that um, the process that I just outlined uh, usually takes uh, somewhere from uh, six to eight weeks. Um, and so um, uh, Rob wasn't uh, in the job um, a, a, a week, and uh, he, he issued his uh, his memo. So it was in that respect, it was stunning that it was so swift, um, and um, and 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 the breadth of it, uh, the breadth of the uh, 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 of the memo. Um, uh, usually, the um, uh, memo talks about. Uh, going forward, what the general counsel is looking for going forward, what issues are coming down the pike, well, what his initiatives are. This memo was looking back um, and talked about significant cases uh, should come into, divide, into advice and define those significant uh, cases as, as any case under the Obama board that overruled precedent and had a, un, uh, one or more dissents. Uh, cases involving issues that the board hasn't decided. Again, that's looking forward and any other uh, um, uh, in, in important cases. The memo then provides a long and expressively non-exhaustive list of, uh, of such cases. And uh, what that tells me, that uh, issues under the Obama board where there were Republican dissents are going to be sent back uh, to the board uh, uh, for them to reconsider those cases. And the mechanism for doing that is issuing a complaint. So, extant uh, uh, board law says there's a violation. Uh, the, the, the general counsel believes that that, was, that uh, decision uh, should be modified in certain ways, either along the lines of the dissent or in some other ways, but that it should change. And he, he, the only way, the mechanism that he has to do that is to um, issue a complaint. And, um, and, and the, the ALJ is going to follow board law and find a violation, assuming the facts uh, support it. And then that would give the general counsel an opportunity, if exceptions are filed and a violation is found, uh, to um, argue some other sort of um, uh, uh, result. So it's 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 a um, it's not a traditional uh, use of the um, uh, general counsel's prosecutorial um, uh, 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 authority, but whether it's a traditional use or not, there's nothing improper uh, about it. It's certainly uh, it's certainly been uh, fascinating, and, and clearly the. Uh the NLRB is going to be on the forefront of uh, developing labor law and on the minds of employers, um, you know, still going forward for uh, the next few years. Um, before before I get into a few specific issues that were just addressed over the past couple of weeks and some specific uh, noteworthy cases, I'm really interested in getting your thoughts on uh, this conceptual question that I have. I actually had the pleasure of 
interviewing Richard Griffin this past April for the podcast, and he was incredibly open and uh, and, and uh, very outspoken about the issue of perception and how employers and the legal community generally view the NLRB. Um, and I'm interested in your feelings on this. You know, the last two weeks we've seen almost an unprecedented flurry of decisions from the NLRB overturning board precedent not 20 or 30 years ago, but really just from a few years ago during the Obama administration. I think the employers are, are probably happy with it. Those on the employee side of the aisle are probably not so happy. But here's my broader question. Is all of the flip-flopping, uh, to, to use that term, based solely on political wins and the White House resident, is that ultimately a good thing, do you think, when it comes to employers being able to plan and act based on predictions on how company behavior is going to be treated? Well, I think to uh, understand the, this flip-flopping uh, phenomena that has been going on, and I've been part of the flip-flops uh, uh, in the, my career with the uh, with the um, uh, agency, and I think you you, you need to uh, get to the, you know, there's a there's a dynamic that's going on here, um, that I think has gotten worse and and and, and worse, and uh, that dynamic uh, started back in the um, uh, in, in the 80s. So prior to that time, uh, board members uh, who, who who was a board member were drawn from the uh, uh, ranks of um, of uh, government, uh, academia, and there was a lot of uh, stability, and it was not unusual uh, to have a board member serve for 20 years. That's multiple terms, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that changed in the um, uh, in the in the 80s when um, uh, lawyers, uh, management side lawyers. And uh, after that, uh, 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 union side lawyers uh, who had clients who had certain views um, and uh, they were in the trenches with their clients. And that's where the board members um, came from. And uh, not to uh, uh, say that these individuals came in with a uh, preconceived idea of, um, of, of what they were going to do, but they had a certain worldview. Um, that uh, a management lawyer has a certain uh, honestly held worldview that a union lawyer um, uh, doesn't, and um, and when uh, w- when that happened, um, uh, you started getting um, uh, flip flops, and the pendulum, it seems to me, has started to uh, swing uh, wider and wider and and wider, and. Uh, the uh, dialogue is um, uh, getting more um, um, ac- acrimonious. Um, and, but you're absolutely right. Um, uh, one side or the other is uh, uh, not going to be happy depending upon who's in, uh, who's in office. And not just unhappy, but really unhappy. Yeah. Um, uh, and, it's, and it's very uh, destabilizing. Yeah, and it makes it difficult. I mean, as I said, it, you know, we, you could, we could argue all day as to this particular decision or this particular year or four-year term, employers are going to be happy or employees are going to be happy. It just it seems to me one of the things that we do as lawyers, I think, um, is advise and counsel our clients, uh, and we do that based on 
precedent and based on how we view the board and how we think the board will um, deal with this particular issue and it, it sort of is difficult to be able to do that and for clients and companies to be able to um, model their behavior if the rules are going to be changing every four years or every eight years. I think it's I, you're absolutely right and I, I think it's also um, uh, endemic with the statute. I mean this this is a New Deal statute uh, passed in uh, 80 years ago and it still uh, uh, it rises a passion in people that it did 80 years ago uh, and the and, and the world has changed dramatically but the passion hasn't changed on both sides of the uh, uh, both sides of the aisle and it seems to me that every time someone touches it to try to change it sparks file yeah, that's, that's a great point. So let's turn to a few specific issues then that uh, really were addressed rather predominantly over the past week. First, uh, this joint employer issue. Um, Browning-Ferris, and, and that decision was really a watershed decision on the issue of joint employer liability under the National Labor Relations Act. And last week on December 14th, um, as we all know, the board issued a decision in a case involving high brand industrial contractors and Brandt Construction Company, which reversed Browning-Ferris and now brings us back to a more employer-friendly standard that might make it harder again for individuals to hold, for example, franchisors uh, liable. Um, can you walk us through this joint employer issue and uh, what this reversal means and how it will impact uh, on employers? Sure. Um, first of all, uh, under Highbrand, interestingly, the, the board found the violation of the act, found them to be uh, joint uh, employers, um, even with the new standard. Even with the new standard, but but um, went on to um, take that opportunity to um, uh, reverse uh, uh, Browning Ferris um, um, uh, standard. Uh, so to understand the, um, uh, the the what what the big disagreement is about, let's just talk about what the standard was before uh, uh, Browning. Uh, uh, Ferris, and that was if if one you weren't going to be a joint employer unless one entity exercised control over essential terms and conditions of employment of another entity's employees, and has done so directly and immediately in a manner that is not limited or routine, and there was no. Um, um, uh, uh, consideration at all of indirect or uh, reserved or potential uh, control. Now this standard um, uh, to a lot of people and I think correctly so was a bright line and gave predictability uh, to business entities when they entered into uh, relationships uh, whether or not they were going to subject themselves to um, uh, joint employer liability because of that uh, relationship. Well, Browning Ferris changed all that and um, added um, this potential control or reserve uh, uh, control uh, aspect um, uh, uh, to it, along with uh, all the other common law uh, tests. What upset the uh, majority and when they in their opinion of um, 
high brand is they saw this as um, uh, a wide open door that you could you can find joint employer based merely on potential rather than direct and immediate um, uh, control over essential terms and conditions um, of, of employment. Interestingly enough, both sides, um, uh, the, the, the board in Highbrand and the board in Browning Ferris contended and contended viscerally that they were just applying the common law standard. Well, they both can't be right. The, the common law standard has potential control in it, or it it, it 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 doesn't. And let me just say, me personally, uh, this decision was uh, unexpected. You know, you, you as as Miss Camara's term was um, winding down, you play the Pollard games as to what decisions are likely to be reversed, and that was nowhere near on my. Um, uh, radar. Why is that? Well, I I, I just thought with uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But uh, the Browning Ferris decision itself was in the Court of Appeals, waiting decision, and uh, we need to talk about the effect of uh, of uh, this decision um, uh, on on that ongoing litigation. But just to just to finish up with High Brand was. Uh, will will that uh, decision likely get court review? It is unlikely. I mean, the union won, so they can't take it. They don't have any standing to take it to court. If Hybrid takes it to court, they're going to be arguing that they're not an employer uh, under the under the joint employer under the 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 new standard, and the union is going to be complaining uh, about what the board did. Uh, in changing the standard, I don't think the court is going to reach out to to uh, address that. That's true. So for employers now um, that we have the high brand uh, decision, what is the current standard when it comes to joint employer liability uh, for purposes of the NLRA? Well, it is it is the uh, it is it is high brand. They replied that uh, retroactively, and it uh, 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 it has. Um, uh, all sorts of, um, uh, I think, uh, consequences for uh, ongoing um, uh, uh, litigation. I mean, as I said, uh, Browning Ferris is in the D.C. Court of Appeals waiting decision. I would have, I would have thought that that decision would have issued by now. Um, it's, it's the, it, the if it had, it's certainly to the point where they're looking at proofs. Um, I can't. I mean, that decision is long overdue, and um, uh, uh, the, recently, uh, yesterday, uh, Browning Ferris sent uh, a letter to the court advising them of the uh, of the high brand um, uh, uh, decision, um, and uh, uh, because of the rule they filed it under, they couldn't make any any argument. But obviously, the implication is. Is that the that the that the uh, court ought to uh, send it uh, back to the uh, uh, to the board, um, and we haven't heard from the board as to uh, whether or not uh, they're going to ask to uh, have it um, uh, come uh, come back. Um, the other uh, uh, litigation that uh, 
Uh, and well, let me just say, as to the Browning Ferris, if they do ultimately issue a decision, um, they will decide what the common law standard is, because as both sides uh, recognize, they, the board is statutorily obligated to apply the common law standard in deciding joint employer. So where are we right now as we stand with uh, with Highbrand as of today, which is December 20th as we're recording this? Um, what has to be shown uh, for there to be joint employer liability then? Well, as I, as, as I, as I said before, it's uh, one entity exercising control over essential terms and conditions of employment of another entity's employees and has done so directly and immediately in a manner that is not limited or routine. Um, it's a bright line test and you know whether you've met it or not. You expect Congress to step in at some point and address this issue legislatively? Well, I, I don't. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it's presently pending before the, um, uh, the, the House passed the bill um, um, legislating the new standard. It's presently before the Senate. I think that uh, the really the uh, pressure is, is off and with so many other things uh, going on, I really don't think that uh, there's going to be any impetus, impetus for, um, uh, for Congress to step in now that the board has. Is there any impact uh, of this high brand decision on sort of the other joint employer standards that courts around the country have been uh, promulgating? Well, well, no, because um, uh, those those other standards have a much looser test. The one that uh, quickly comes to mind is um, is the economic realities in wage and hour, and um, uh, Secretary Acosta uh, with last June. Would you the, the 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 prior wage and hour administrator's memo uh, that sought to clarify a broader definition of the term under the Fair Labor Standards Act? And uh, once he gets his team together, I'm sure he will be uh, talking about what economic reality means as far as the Department of Labor is concerned. And I would suspect that it'd be a lot narrower than the Obama's wage administrator thought. That's great. So let's shift gears uh, to another real significant issue uh, that we've been grappling with, all of us, uh, for a number of years now, and that's uh, workplace policies and employee handbooks. Um, we've been talking a lot about this the past eight years. This is one of those questions that I asked uh, Dick Griffin about uh, this past April when it comes to employer perception that the NLRB has really become a very pro-employee activist uh, government board. First, before I get into the Boeing decision, why do you think that the board has taken such an active approach on the issue of workplace policies and handbooks for the past uh, you know, seven, eight years? Well, I, 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 I think that the, the question goes broader than that, and I think it's a mistake to just focus in on the uh, past eight years because of the turmoil resolving, revolving around the application of the um, uh, Lutheran uh, Village test. I think you have to go back much farther into when did the board's first starting noticing employee rules and wanting to say whether they were facially uh, unlawful rule was was lawful and that started in 1998 um, you know the more than way more than eight years ago with a case called Lafayette Park 
that first enunciated a rule that it would be unlawful if it's likely to chill Section 7 um, uh, activity, that's activities under the Act. Um, that was a, um, as they say, a, a barn door that you could drive a train through, and uh, 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 everything uh, seemed to be uh, unlawful. And then in 2004, a Republican board uh, changed that standard in Lutheran Village. So Lutheran Village is the product of a Republican board. Um, and they had a three-part test. Um, and uh, the part that uh, has caused all the turmoil is uh, it's unlawful if employees could uh, reasonably construe the language to uh, uh, restrict uh, uh, Section 7 activity. Uh, and in the uh, and, and Boeing overturned that decision, and the in the 13 years that followed, um, uh, so it was more than just the past eight years. In the 13 years that that uh, uh, followed uh, the enactment of Lutheran Village, um, uh, it became obvious it was uh, a standard very difficult uh, to apply and was getting into inconsistent results depending upon. Uh, the the makeup of the board, and if, uh, if someone is really interested in it, they can just look at the Boeing decision, and the the majority does a very good job of taking uh, different kinds of rules that seemingly are the same. Uh, one rule is lawful, and one rule is unlawful, and I will guarantee you will walk away from reading those differences, scratching your head, trying to make rhyme or reason of it. And it might be from the employer perception when you talk about whether it's eight years or whether it dates back to the 90s, at least on this particular issue. I think a lot of this really started um, from the employer standpoint, really in 2010, and maybe it was because of Facebook and the whole social media aspect of it, but with the, the case involving the Connecticut Ambulance Company. Mm -hmm. um, and that really was the accelerant, I think, for getting this on the front page and the front burner of so many uh, employers out there who, who started to see the NLRB for the first time as really dealing with these rules, even though, as you say, um, they had been dealing with them for years before that. Um, it, it might be that in 2010, because the uh, issue in that case involved Facebook uh, and, and this new era of social media and technology, that that's really what uh, prompted people to, to, to take another look, or in some cases a first look at the board. Oh, I, I, I think that, 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 that certainly uh, uh, ignited the uh, controversy, because, oh, 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 oh my goodness gracious, it's not just a rule in a handbook that employees see, it's, it's something that's being said on social media that that never seems to go away that uh is detrimental to the employer and um and uh, a whole body of law had to develop concerning whether or not and what activity or was protected and not protected in social media yeah it's it's been a it's been a fun eight years in that regard and uh you know the beauty of it is we've all created these snazzy powerpoint slides which talk about uh, the do's and don'ts of uh, what you can do if you see an employee uh, saying something or doing something on social media and um, what your workplace policies should and shouldn't say. And here we are also again next uh, last week, we've got this new decision uh, regarding the Boeing company. Uh, and you have uh, this new board adopting new standards for reviewing facially neutral workplace rules and handbook policies. 
give us a sense of what you think the impact of this decision is and how will the board be reviewing these kinds of things going forward now? Oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, we'll see whether or not this new rule is any easier uh, to <laughs> apply than, than, the, than, the, than the old rule. But there is a significant change. And, and arguably it's a significant change for the better, although there are a number of people who would seriously disagree with that. And the new test um, uh, that's articulated will evaluate the extent and potential. First of all, it's a balancing process. Um, and it'll evaluate the extent and potential impact on the NLRA rights. That sounds a little bit like the old Lutheran Village standard. Uh, but you're balancing. And what are you balancing? And you're balancing a legitimate justification associated with the rule. Now, this new test was first uh, devised about a year and a half ago uh, by um, then-member Ms. Camara in a case called uh, uh, Beaumont uh, Hospital, and he expanded on that. And because uh, the board was very much interested in uh, giving clarity to what something that had been very murky, uh, uh, they wanted to give guidance as to what uh, these various rules are rather than some subjective standard. And so they came up with three categories. Uh, rules that are always lawful, sometimes lawful, or never lawful. And in the always um, uh, uh, lawful uh, category, they, they named uh, three kinds of rules. First of all, the camera rule, the no camera rule in Boeing, um, harmonious interactions, and, re and the reason they found that to be um, uh, uh, lawful is they balanced legitimate justification with Boeing, who's a defense contractor. Um, uh, the, they have um, uh, not only are other uh, def other defense contractors trying to steal their uh, uh, trade secrets, but uh, foreign governments uh, are, and so they're very security conscious and not having cameras on the uh, floor of the plant uh, was a legitimate concern. So in that balance. Uh, uh, Boeing uh, won, and so that uh, rule was lawful. Other ones that they said were uh, lawful, harmonious interactions and relationships, <coughs> and, um, and other rules requiring civility. I think where this comes from is the obvious conflict that has been uh, 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 talked about and written about between EEOC's promulgation of um, uh, 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 work, uh, uh, workplace being free of um, harassment and other kind of uh, uh, misconduct that violates uh, EEOC. And it would seem that there is a tension between these civility rules and harmonious interactions uh, with them. And uh, that, that tension uh, got eliminated um, in Boeing. Now, the sometimes lawful is the balancing and the uh, never lawful is the uh, uh, you can't discuss wages and other benefits with other employees. And I think when you were talking about the uh, the always lawful bucket, just going back to the uh, you know the the harmonious interaction concept, I think that's really the perfect example of what was uh, getting under the skin uh, getting under the skin of employers um, who you know had employment policies 
from the dawn of time saying employees you need to be courteous to each other just sort of a general civility statement um, that all of a sudden the board was was telling employers they couldn't have they couldn't say to their employees and I think this new Boeing rule or these new three buckets that you've just described from the Boeing case provides not only a little bit more clarity to this to the issues but also a little bit of common sense <coughs> I, I think you're, you're absolutely um uh, right. Uh, I mean, it's the the other system. Uh, you know, no matter how much you want to say that it was uh, protecting the employees, wasn't working. Uh, and if it's not working, it's 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 a failed uh, it's a failed um, uh, standard. And so they applied the um, rule uh, retroactively, um, and so it was applied in that Boeing case. I don't know whether or not the charging party union or uh, union bar generally is going to be interested in taking that to the court of appeals but certainly uh there's the opportunity for that to happen okay so another thing i've been hearing a lot uh, from uh, clients uh, in the last week or so is uh, should they be going uh, to the garbage can and taking their old handbooks out or is this you know like we started in this interview talking about uh, with the flip-flopping is this just going to be another situation where we we bring back our old handbooks and then four years from now uh, we're going to go back to where we just were uh, a month ago well i think i think what employers uh, can um, uh, take away uh, from this and it's and it's, it's 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 significant is that before under Lutheran um, uh, heritage uh, they were um, required to engage in wordsmithing uh, of a rule uh, so that the employees wouldn't reasonably believe that it interfered with their rights in the act they just couldn't talk plain English. They had to somehow couch it in terms that it would not offend uh, Section 7. <clears throat> so I think what what is the helpful part of this uh, change is that they can now talk in plain English but provide the business justification uh, and communicate in the rule what the business justification is will go a long ways in helping them decide themselves whether or not the balance is there, and 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 if a charge is filed, uh, someone who's a decision maker. So while we're certainly sensitive to not uh, infringing on employees' uh, rights under the NLRA, we're also now uh, finally, I guess, injecting uh, both the employer interest and the legitimate business interest into the equation, as well as, as I said a moment ago, some common sense with some of this. That's correct. Okay, and, and so we all know, and, and certainly the issues that we've been talking about so far um, are not dependent on whether the employer is a unionized facility or not, uh, and that's that continues to be one of the big myths out there. We, we hopefully all know by now that uh, the board's jurisdiction and the NLRA do not uh, just extend to unionized facilities, but there were a few union-specific or union-related issues that have just come down that I, I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, very quickly. Uh, first, the board uh, just recently gave notice concerning a new election rule. Can you tell us what that is and what that means going forward? Well, uh, yes. I, I mean, the board engaged in extensive uh, rulemaking, something that they are not built to do. Um, it, 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 it took a, a good deal of time. Uh, there were hearings, uh, uh, lots of comments, uh, hearings. 
where people were rule and and the board um, uh, fashioned um, uh, a, a rule that um, uh, set forth um, uh, significant changes in how the board was uh, going to um, process uh, um, our cases. That rule is a, a year and a half old. It was roundly criticized uh, by the management community called ambush elections because of the quickness that uh, they were going to elections and uh, real issues seem to be um, that the uh, employer had as to eligibility and appropriateness of the unit <coughs> were, um, were uh, ran uh, uh, roughshod. Uh, but in any event, we, we have um, uh, uh, had that rule for a year and a half. There was a lot of blood, sweat, tears that went into making it. And the board issued a notice, uh, not of rulemaking, but a notice of what about this rule? Uh, and gave people three choices. Uh, this is a good rule. And we ought to keep it. Uh, this is a bad rule. and We ought to just get rid of it altogether and go back to the old way of doing business. And if we go back to the old way of doing business, uh, are there some changes that should be made? And third of all, uh, keep the rule, but have some changes in it. Uh, and um, the comments are due sometime uh, uh, the middle part of, um, of, of January. So they seem to be signaling that they're willing to embark upon another odyssey to... Um, uh, revamp a rule that um, uh, was uh, long in the making. And if I was uh, going to give you a crystal ball, um, where do you think this rule is going to end up? Oh, I I, I don't know. Uh, I, <laughs> as as as, as uh, I I know the intention. I mean the rule itself. I mean the notice itself, and the uh, unhappiness in the. Uh, management community with the with the election rule uh there there is a desire to um uh uh to uh, uh do it um uh but it's hard and hard things um uh sometimes uh don't get done because it's just too hard um and so we'll see and uh, so the board uh, also just issued a new decision uh, in PCC Structurals, which uh, overruled a very controversial micro-unit decision uh, in specialty health care. Um, first question, can you explain to those folks who may not be as familiar with it, um, what was this micro-unit um, issue uh, that came out of specialty health care? Okay, I, I, I think that um, in order to understand specialty health care, you have to understand uh, what the board's jurisprudence as far as appropriate units was uh, before specialty health care and why um, everybody in the uh, employer community was uh, very up upset with health specialty health care. The, 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 the prior rule was um, and a unit is appropriate if a group of employees have a community of interest. Well, what is a community of interest? Well, that's whether the employees are organized into separate departments, have dis distinct skills and training, distinct job functions, and perform distinct work, uh, including inquiry into the amount and type of job overlap between classifications. Are they functionally integrated? Very important uh, in the old standard. Um, 
with the employer's other employees, have frequent contact with other employees, again, very important in the old standard, interchange with other employees, again, very important in the old standard, and have distinct terms and conditions of employment that are separately supervised. And you take these lists of factors, and each side would say, these employees should be in a in a unit and these employees should not be and they would both argue based upon um, uh, these factors. And the well, purpose of this, this, this goes ultimately to the question of whether Group X can become a union. That's correct. That's, that's correct because uh, then that appropriate unit gets to vote on whether or not they're going to have uh, a union uh, representation. Now, what specialty healthcare did um, was start off with um, uh, asking the question, is there a group of employees who are relatively identifiable as a group based upon job classifications, departments, functions, work location, skill, or similar factors using the traditional factors as was discussed uh, just a second or so ago. <clears throat> and if that is correct, and the um, uh, employer says, oh, no, 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 these other employees have to, they're part of it. Uh, but that that employer, under the, under the specialty standard, doesn't get to use the traditional factors as he did before to say why they should be included. They have to show um, uh, the burdens on the employer to show that um, those employees that he wants to have have an overwhelming community of interest uh, to be in, 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 in included. Um, and so, um, uh, at least on its face, it, it, would, it would, would indicate that uh, it's going to be much easier to um, organize uh, 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 the unorganized if you can get a group of employees that fit the traditional community sta interest standards and are, and are union friendly um, and you can keep out the um, uh, other employees by having a very high burden. And so PCC Structurals is certainly viewed as a much more employer friendly role. Yeah, and what 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 happened there is, um, uh, this was a unit of welders um, across um, three distinct locations, and the employer was arguing that oh, well, if you're going to have three locations, then it's got to be all the employees in all the three locations, and the board remanded it to have them uh, uh, apply the um, uh, new uh, new standard. And so the last um, union-related issue uh, that uh, has just come up recently, I want to talk to you about. Uh, it's a decision uh, also last week on December 15th. Uh, it's a case involving uh, Raytheon network-centric systems where it seemed to relax the employer's duty to bargain with a union in certain situations. Uh, what's this one about? Well, th th this one... What th this is about is is a kind of uh, I think cutely ca can be summed up is by by asking the question, when is a change not a change, but instead the status quo? And this has been a long-standing issue in a number of different aspects of the board's uh, uh, jurisprudence for uh, some time. It rises its head in 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 Raytheon, where Raytheon. Um, uh, uh, yearly, it had a benefits program, and every year they would 
um, offer new benefits and give employees choices. And in the collective bargaining agreement, uh, the union had incorporated the benefit plan that gave the employer um, uh, authority to act unilaterally in making changes um, in the in, in, in the in the in the in the benefits. Um, and so the employer um, uh, during the uh, time for yearly renewal would unilaterally uh, make change of benefits. And this was uh, uh, from um, an 11 year history of this change being done without the union's objection at all. But importantly, I think, at no time has there been a hiatus between overlapping, uh, um, uh, over the, having a, a hiatus between a collective bargaining agreement and overlapping OPER open enrollment. Here there was a hiatus. Um, and more of the flip-flopping, because in the, in the question is, uh, now that you have a hiatus, can you still act unilaterally uh, when the waiver in the contract uh, arguably has uh, expired? And this is, uh, again, flip-flopping with the board. In one case, Courier-Journal, they found that, um, uh, that it was uh, lawful in DuPont that got reversed and then um, Raytheon got reversed uh, uh, again. Uh, I think this case is likely, well, I shouldn't say it, it uh, 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 the, the, the union can take this to the Court of Appeals. I think the, 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 the question uh, really is, um, uh, and um, people could have different arguments about it, but does a waiver in a collective bargaining agreement um, uh, survive uh, and uh, the Raytheon board said yes the change had been for the last 11 years you able to do this unilaterally the fact that the contract expired had nothing to do with it uh, and they can continue to do it uh, and the um, DuPont board says no it, it is different so we'll see yeah, this is all. Uh, this is all interesting. If it, nothing else, uh, just uh, the number of issues that have been addressed in such a short period of time. Um, you know, th this month of December, we're only three weeks in, and already we've seen uh, the new general counsel's memo and uh, all of these decisions on really what are significant issues for employers, employees, uh, and unions. I mean, just from a takeaway standpoint, what? What do you think employers should take away from what this first three three weeks in December um, have been? Well, I, I think it's too early to take away uh, anything. Uh, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, there's some obvious things which people have uh, talked about. It's going to be easier um, uh, uh, for employers to 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 do things. Uh, concerns have. Um, uh, been alleviated, uh, but uh, you know, you had a few days in the middle of December when these cases issued. That was certainly a seismic event in uh, labor law, and and sometimes the ground has got to stop rumbling and the debris got to be picked up before you know what the impact is. <laughs> That's true. Do you see any uh, other significant decisions or even guidance um, coming out soon as we uh, get to and then just past the New Year's? Well, um, uh, um, uh, Ms. Kamara's term ended uh, the um, uh, on December, um, uh, and Monday at five o'clock, a bunch of decisions 
um, uh, came out that obviously were uh, in the process, were signed, but be in the process of being issued. Now, there was none uh, yesterday uh, uh, at 5 o'clock, and if there's none today at 5 o'clock and none tomorrow at 5 o'clock, I guess you would say uh, the, the earthquake is... Uh, is is over um i would suspect that the general counsel is going to be looking at this these decisions and making some determinations and on 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 guidelines uh to the regional offices uh, and and on how to proceed uh on a, on a whole variety of things because it certainly is not business as usual and once we get past January 1st, 2018, uh, knowing uh, what initiatives have been highlighted in uh, the General Counsel's memo, um, do you expect any particular issues to be uh, taken up uh, sooner rather than later? No, I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, there are so many uh, that he is interested in, 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 in dealing with, and, and, that, and that's going to depend upon what issues are out there presently percolating in the in the regional offices i mean complaints are going to be issued and if ultimately uh, there's uh, uh the regional office prevails on a an obama era uh, case uh that's when his interest starts and so it's going to take some time for those kind of things to percolate up to him well, uh, this has all been interesting and I um, uh, hope really useful to those who are listening, whether, again, you're a unionized facility or not. Um, but, Barry, thank you so much for uh, uh, taking all this time today and uh, walking us through some uh, really remarkable and significant decisions that have just come out. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Michael. Good talking to you. You as well. I hope you found that interesting. Uh, this has been probably an unbelievably fascinating uh, and jarring to some last few years with the NLRB, certainly. Um, I suspect that the next few weeks, months, and years uh, are not going to be any less noteworthy. And uh, we will keep you posted and updated, as always, on new developments coming from the board. Until then, uh, as always, also, I want to thank you so much for listening. As I know you've got so many things going on in your lives these days as we count down to the end of 2017. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive. <laughs>